Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome back to an episode of Stop the Killing, season four. Before we get started, Catherine, we do want to give a big shout out to our latest Patreon member and an unusual name, Boxman. Sure, that's not his God-given name, but big thanks (laughs) Big box man, regardless. And if anyone is listening and wants to support the show, you can just go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing and you can get ad free early access and loads of bonus content. I just wanted to say, you know, one of the things that we do on these bonuses for Patreons is when something is hot and in the news, we get on and talk about it. Which is a perfect segue into our topic today, Catherine, because today we're doing a case that's actually not a mass shooting by definition, right? That's correct. Right. It would actually, in, it, but it would be an active shooter. True. So it's born out of two listener questions that happened hot on the heels of this incident. And we're going to go through those two listener questions in a minute, but Can you just give us a little thumbnail of what the incident was? People have probably heard about this in all corners of the globe as far as I'm concerned. I couldn't believe it. So a few weeks ago, a few hours south of my house in Newport News, Virginia, a six-year-old elementary school student, six meaning very young. Crazy. In the afternoon at school, pulled a nine millimeter gun out of his pocket and shot his teacher. But she's alive. Yeah. So that's the good news. And that is why it's not classed as a mass shooting incident. But a six-year-old with a gun, it's just so many questions that need to be answered about that. Because, you know, give it a couple of years and this could have run completely differently. Yeah, I think there are so many things that jump out just at the outset, the age of the child and access to the gun and the fact that it was a school shooting in some of the details that I think... I was shocked to hear. And so if I was shocked to hear it when I have heard it all, uh, <laughs> True. Yeah. Then, then I think our listeners will be shocked. Well, you know, another person who was quite shocked was one of our Patreon members, which was Carolyn Casey. And she sent us in a listener question. Oh, uh, I love so, it. Yeah. Let me crack into it for you. Got my glasses on. She starts off. Hi, I am wondering if you could both give your opinions on the Richneck Elementary School. Is that how you pronounce it, do you think? Richneck? That's how I'd pronounce it. Okay. So the Richneck Elementary School shooting of a six-year-old who shot his teacher in front of the class. I'm wondering after all the school shootings, do schools actually have threat assessment procedures? And if they do, are they actually trained? It sounds like there were too many chances this could have been prevented. 
And I'm reading a good amount of the special attention the student, now shooter, received. That, if true, was it responsible parenting to still have their gun in the home, regardless of it being secured or not? Wow, those are so many questions that are so good. And that's only part one. We've still got another listener question to follow up with later on. But let's tackle this one first because... Yeah, yeah. let's... Can we pull that apart? So just Mm -hmm. to uh, set this table... We have an elementary school that's in a beautiful area in Virginia and a child who attends the school and the child has a 25-year-old female teacher who has been teaching for just a couple of years and has this six-year-old in the classroom. We're just going to refer to him as a six-year-old as long as you're good with that. So the six-year-old's in the classroom and by way of background, I think it's important that we all understand that this child is what we would call mainstreamed into the Virginia school system, meaning that the child has some emotional or physical disabilities, but through a process that's done all the time, that child is mainstreamed into the school system and their needs are met in that school. Think of it like if you needed speech therapy, right? You wouldn't keep your kid from going to school. You would have a speech therapist come to the school to help your child improve in their challenges for speech. So this is the same situation, emotional or physical disabilities or limitations or challenges. And the situation the child was in was severe enough that the child had a parent with him in class every day. That is very hard to comprehend from a family functioning point of view, isn't it? That right. One parent's entire resources are spent at school every day. Yeah, I've never, I've never I've seen never that. that. No, neither um, have I. And I should say also, I used to actually run a unit in a school that was in a mainstream school, but only catering to those kids that couldn't be in the mainstream classes. So supporting them outside, they might have had mm-hmm. learning difficulties, ADHD, behavioral problems. But never would I imagined the kind of behavior you would have needed to have a parent in the classroom with that child. And not just misbehavior, right? I have somebody who's very close to me who had a child who needed to have an aide sit next to them because the child had trouble, you know, holding a pencil because she had problems in terms of her dexterity. But fortunately, this child was in a school system that could afford to put an aide next to that child all right. day. And in this case, when we talk about, oh, a child has behavior problems. So behavior isn't necessarily misbehavior. It's just that you need a lot more attention. But since the shooting occurred, we have historical pieces put together about this child's behaviors that were misbehaviors. And I think this gets to the threat assessment question. So in terms of the background, the incident itself was timeline-wise, child was in school, parents weren't in school with the child. That was the first week that the parents had not been in school with the child since ever. Wow. So there was no parent in the school. The child is in the school. But we know previous incidents where the child had previously tried to choke a teacher, had threatened other students, had gotten into fights. There are more that I think we can get into. But at 1230 on that day, there is a teacher that learns that they believe the child has a gun at 1230. The shooting occurs at 2 p.m. essentially. Mm -hmm. So from 1230 to 2 p.m., there are three separate incidents where administrators or teachers at school have discussions about this child's potential ownership of a weapon at the time, including a time when one of them stops and searches his backpack. 
no right. gun is ever found. And then the shooting occurs. Okay, so, well, let's crack into that. If yeah. there was a threat assessment team in the school, would that have not triggered some kind of process to stop those two hours in between with a gun well, floating around a school? So here's what I'm going to say is probably the most frustrating part. This school is in the state that I live in, Virginia. Virginia is was one of the first states to mandate threat assessment teams in all schools. So, okay. so where are we is saying, the threat assessment team? Right. So we're saying on, that there should ahead. have been a threat assessment team in this school, but it didn't do what threat assessment teams should have done. I think that there's probably some sort of threat assessment team in the school or the school district. You don't have to have one physically in every school, but the concept of a threat assessment team is that you bring together the right people to solve those short and long-term concerns. So if that includes a school resource officer, for instance, because you have a gun that appears, then you bring the school resource officer in as part of your threat assessment team. School districts may have one team and they pull it together and they review things on an urgency basis. And if there was a, an indication there was a gun, which gets to the listener question, your question, if there was an indication there's a gun, we're kind of past going and finding the threat assessment team. Right. Now, the allegations of violent conduct before choking a teacher, beating up a student, trying to set somebody on fire, oh. all not good things. No. So was this child on a documented evaluation by a threat assessment team? Not as far as we know. Nothing has been said publicly about that, whether or not that school district had an operating threat assessment team. A lot of times they're just on paper. As I said, in Virginia, you're mandated to have one. So they may have something on paper. But the question I have for the school district is, where is it? Was this kid on it? One of the teachers that came in to talk to administration said, so-and-so from my classroom said this six-year-old showed him a gun on the playground and told him if he told anybody, he would shoot him. That comment was told to an administrator in the school, right? Right. And presumably anybody who has knowledge of this child in the school, which I'm imagining a load of them do, he's got red flag after red flag after red flag, probably beside his name. Right. It's surprising that nothing was thrown straight into action. Well, another teacher caught wind of this yeah, and searched the six-year-old's backpack and then when a discussion was had with the administration. The teacher said, I searched his backpack and there's no gun there, but I think that he took it out and put it on his person, like in his pocket before he went out on the playground. So these conversations are happening while the boy is out on the playground, as we know now, showing somebody else the gun. Oh my goodness. And that teacher is told that six-year-olds have small pockets. (laughs) So it's... Okay. Can't make it up. Couldn't write this for a script. People would say that's too stupid. Six-year-olds have small pockets, so therefore he's out in the playground. He can't have a gun on him. That's can't possibly have a gun on him. Right. Okay. But teacher says, Can I search him? Right. And let's do a search of the child. Yeah. Right. So in the meantime, no one has apparently eyes on this child. Yeah. I mean, if there is an allegation of a gun, hello, somebody should have eyes on a child. And presumably that somebody should be law enforcement who knows how to handle 
a person with a gun. I don't even care if the allegation is a six-year-old. I had a sad opportunity to read the police reports when a high school child told administration at their high school, look, so-and-so has a gun with him. He's got it in his pocket. And like a principal and two vice principals, you know, called Johnny so-and-so down to the front office to say, hey, do you have a gun on you? And Johnny so-and-so pulled the gun out and shot all three of them. Wow. So you can't Uh. take that lightly. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So in this case, what we really have is a child who came to school, this child has previous behavioral concerns, misbehavior, right? And then also has physical and mental challenges and is in school with special needs and being cared for by parents and teachers. But he's a known commodity because he's had prior situations where he's attacked teachers and he's attacked students. And then at 1230 in the afternoon, As he is heading out to the playground, teachers have an opportunity to have discussions. Three teachers bring to the administration the concerns about the fact that they have heard he had a gun, they've searched a backpack, they think it might be in a pocket. Oh no, his pockets are too little. Six-year-olds are little, they don't have big pockets. And don't worry about searching him because the school day is almost over. Wow. So, well, let's go back to Carolyn's question then and then pick about that first part of her question. It says, Mm -hmm. you know, do schools actually have threat assessment procedures? We're saying that, yeah, Virginia, where this school was, should have had threat assessment procedures, but clearly something's broken down there. And if they do, Uh, are they actually trained is the next part of that. Exactly. I could think it's just more to that, right? If if the school district has one, 
because they're obligated to under state law, how functioning is it? And do the teachers and the administrators know how it operates? And do they know when it's not a question of bringing something to the threat assessment team, but it's so imminent, you go directly to law enforcement. So I do want to talk about guns in the house and the security of guns in the house, and in this case in particular. But before we do that, the idea that on a threat assessment team, that concept of should you have a threat assessment team, how is it operating? If it was operating properly, the danger level for this child would have been on people's radars. And the threat assessment process helps us to understand when we need to raise bigger alarm bells. And so I agree with you. There's no way that people in the school didn't know that there had been concerns about this child. But I think that challenge is that after the fact, everybody knows it. Everybody sees it on their Facebook trolling page. Everybody sees it on TikTok and Twitter. Everybody hears about it in all the mainstream and local news. But who knew them at that moment? Was it just the teacher and just a counselor? Did the other teachers know that there had been these violent outbreaks before? Because we work very hard to make every child feel like they're welcome and they're part of the family and they're part of the school district. And we don't tell other parents, we don't gossip with other teachers and say, this did this, he said that, he did this. That's violating potentially somebody's privacy. So while we're busy not sharing information, and mind you, I have teachers in my family, stuff happens in their schools. They find out about it afterwards because it is not shared with the rest of the faculty. Happens all the time. Two questions here. If you're listening right now and you're thinking, God, my school, I want to direct them to get a threat assessment team blueprint. Where's the quickest place that you can go to get all the information, how to ground zero up a threat assessment team. There's a whole chapter in my book about it. Right. But, Great. Stop the killing. But don't but don't buy it because it's coming out in soft cover very shortly. Probably maybe by the time you hear this. <laughs> you so, are the worst book salesperson in the world. I know. But this hard covered book is just be honest with you, the hard covered book is, you know, $34 and the soft covered book will be half that. So you know, just give me a few minutes. That's all I'm saying. It's it's on its way. But in Virginia, the school systems, the school districts have all kinds of stuff posted. And I'm part of the National Center for School Safety, which you can find on the web at uh, NC2, the number, nc2s.org. I have done a million free webinars and discussions. If you don't understand what threat assessments are, you can find them and do them there. One of the guys who I work with on that is Dewey Cornell. He's here in Virginia, at the University of Virginia. He has his own threat assessment center. His website, uh, his last name is Cornell, the way it sounds. And Dewey, how many can there be? I'm just saying. But he actually posts stuff from his group free online so that everybody can see what a threat assessment is. So if nothing else, look on my website, look on Cornell's website, which I can't tell you the name of because it's not Dewey Cornell. But if you type his name in and then you look up threat assessment, you can probably get it. And then also NC2S. There's a lot of stuff that will tell you what a threat assessment team should be and how it should operate. But the missing link in this case seems to be that even if this particular school district and elementary school was hooked into the concept of a threat assessment team, information about 
students of concern maybe wasn't shared widely enough right? or maybe taken seriously enough because when you do a threat assessment, think about that concept, assessment, how much damage could a six-year-old do? How threatening could a six-year-old be? Yeah, You know, you can pick your six-year-old up and mm. no problem. And, and that's great. But then I think in an assessment standpoint, are they underestimating? Did they underestimate? Yeah, I think that's a really so, good point. So I think there's uh, obviously a lot of discussion that needs to be had in that school district about how they do th- threat assessments. And especially, you know, this was a child who clearly there was long-term concern about and what what we would call tripwires in the FBI, what tripwires were on the table so that if a call is made, if an action occurs, there is an immediate sense of urgency. The word gun is a tripwire. Well, let's move on to guns, 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 as it is every episode. Sounding so pessimistic. <laughs> I mean, you know, season four. Let's just say the guns are still <laughs> at the forefront of every freaking episode. We got a question and actually it was from an interview that I'd done with a YouTuber. Unrelated, but Stop the Killing came up. It was about the other podcast that I do. And when they'd listened to the interview, they had a few questions about this particular case. So I'd like to say that the name of the person, it's obviously a YouTube handle because it's something like at Vero Withofa. <laughs> That's no a good way. To, I don't know what. I mean, maybe <laughs> I'm pronouncing, missing that somehow, but I got We'll nothing. just hope maybe they aren't one of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Anyway. <laughs> So she starts off, or he starts off with, "Will Defo check out the podcast?" <laughs> so maybe they are now. Yeah. And here are some more questions regarding the six-year-old shooting recently. The child must have had gun training. He needed to get the gun, be able to unlock it, and then in brackets, don't they have a security switch? Aim the gun, shoot the gun, be comfortable with the gun, thinking it is the appropriate response to whatever's happened to them. Yeah, let's talk about why did this kid have access to guns in the first place when we've got all of these red flags popping up in his past? So that's a great question. Let's kind of go backwards on it a little bit and say this gun was legally purchased by the child's parent. And according to the parent's attorneys, the gun was kept in a box on the top shelf of the mom's closet. And the gun had a trigger lock on it. No, you know, I'm going to ask, what is a trigger lock? <laughs> That's me. I wasn't going to say, because I know you don't know. I was <laughs> I was trying to just Obviously. be a little more subtle for the lesson form. So you can take a loaded gun and put it into a, a gun safe. You can also, and I think this happens a lot. Sometimes people don't buy gun safes. Maybe they only purchase one gun. And they think, I'll just put it on the top shelf in my closet where my kids would never look because they're not smart enough to realize that all children look there first for Christmas presents. Hello. Uh, Yeah, definitely. That Uh, was how I spent every December. That's what I recall you telling me. (laughs) It is absolutely the first place that every child looks because that's all the the good stuff is at the top of the top shelf. Right. Yeah. And I'm I'm making light, but you know, we had a 12-year-old who took a a handgun to school and killed a faculty member on the playground at school one year. And that 12-year-old had taken the loaded handgun out of the cereal cupboard that was high up in the kitchen. And the parents put there thinking, well, the child would, first of all, not even know it's there and would never be able to reach for it. Well, hello, you're wrong. 
I know this, you like won't even believe I'm going to say this, but there's been a big effort to sell trigger locks with all guns. There are different kinds of locks. So one type of trigger lock that a lot of people like because it's easy is you keep your gun loaded and then you actually take this trigger lock that's designed for that particular firearm that you have. And it looks like a master lock that you spin the dial, you know, kids use them on lockers and you use them on your bike locks, but they're circles. And that circle actually sits where the trigger is. There's no way to pull the trigger. So the fact that they had a gun, they put a lock on it of some sort. Well, that's all great, but they didn't secure the gun in a place where a child wouldn't get to it. And then in addition to that, clearly the key for it was someplace. And I'm sorry to tell you that the most common place that keys are kept for, yeah, you know what I'm going to say. I can hear you. I can hear you shaking in your head. Yeah. I'm just thinking it's probably on the car key ring or something like that. That's hanging on the hook in the hallway. Well, that would be better than the fact that a lot of them are actually left in the box where the gun is kept. Oh, okay. Yeah. So one step closer to stupider. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This is completely me putting my lens on this situation. If I was a parent and I had a child in my house that had already tried to strangle a kindergarten teacher, did you say he lit someone on fire? I'd be sleeping with one eye open, that's for sure. I know. I know. It's very sad. Um, I think he tried to light somebody on fire. I can look at at my notes and be sure that I'm not overstretching on that. Student previously threatened to light a teacher on fire, and in one instance, threw furniture and other items in class. Okay. On the day of the shooting, the boy had threatened to beat up another child. Yeah. That might have been the child who narked on him about the gun. But I think you do raise a fantastic point, which is in a home where you already have a child who is having challenges, weapons in the house provide that child with access to something, even if you think they're all locked up. We always say the most important thing to remember as a law enforcement officer is that you're bringing a gun to a gunfight. You're the one bringing the gun into the environment. So the thing about having the guns in the home, I want to stress this to parents is I know that many of you are very responsible with your guns. And maybe you think that the child can handle it or won't get near it. You know, the shooter at Sandy Hook Elementary School who killed his mother and then went on to Sandy Hook to kill 20 students and six adults, that shooter had access to legally purchased weapons. And the mother was using the opportunity to go out target practicing because that child had a lot of mental health issues. And that was an opportunity that she could get him to go out of the house. He was very reclusive and she was using it as a mechanism to interact with him. And, you know, think about that. It seems ridiculous now, but I understand as a parent that you're always trying to connect. Right. And in the case of this child, I think whatever the parents fears were, the mom's fear was about protection or something. She brought a gun into the gunfight. That was just the circumstances. She did. And then in a case where you have a child who has had all kinds of problems, including violent outbursts, why would you not think that was a risk with regard to that child? I think that is a parent responsibility issue. I agree. Also, if you look back, all of the information that the school must have known along the way, Mm -hmm. you know, those incidents beforehand. Is there any process where the school would then intervene and ask, is there a weapon in the house as part of that threat assessment process? Well, 
you know, that you raise a great point. I mean, I don't know if they had a threat assessment team and what a threat assessment team did, but when you have a child who's violent, do schools reach out and ask the parents, does this child have access to a gun? And I think that so many times they don't because it's an uncomfortable conversation to have. I think this is retooling, right? It's not, here's the threat assessment team and here's how it works. We need to retool what the process is to find the cracks. And I don't have the answers to it. I'm just saying we need to talk about it. I'm law enforcement. So my kids knew I had guns. I had long guns. I can't hide a shotgun or a rifle very easily in your pocket, right? 40-year-olds famously have uh, short pockets, little pockets. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you search for that rifle? I hid it in my pocket. You know, we know that the Oxford High School shooter who pled guilty to terrorism and murder for four kids in Oakland County, Michigan, had brought a gun to school in his backpack, a gun that his parents had purchased for him. He was 15 at the time. And when that shooting occurred, just a very brief couple of days after the purchase, backpack was never searched. The parents were in the school, but never volunteered that they had just bought this kid a gun. Even though they said, well, we kept the gun secured at home. Well, you know, that's still being litigated, as they say. But the question is, if you knew there's a gun and you knew there was a concern, why wouldn't you bring that up to the school? It's on both parents and the school. We're talking about the Oxford school shooting then and that the parents are being prosecuted for this. Is this the same sort of thing that could happen in this case as well, where the parents could be culpable? Yeah, so that's a good question. Most states have some version of a law that says if a parent is irresponsible enough that a child has access to a weapon. Now, I'll tell you what happens is that the children often shoot themselves or kill a sibling. You know, gun violence is the number one cause of death in the United States for children right now, children and adolescents. Unbelievable, isn't it? They're called like unintentional shootings, meaning that the child picked up the gun and it went off accidentally. But in many states, there are laws on the books that say a parent is responsible. You're not providing a safe environment for your child. And the parents in Michigan of the 15-year-old boy this shooting was a few years ago. They're still in jail awaiting trial. Their son has pled guilty and he's in jail probably for life. What does justice look like for a six-year-old mm-hmm. in the first place? And, like, What does and, actually happen to a six-year-old? Clearly, the child was angry at the teacher and intended the act, right? But under the law, that's mens rea, we call it, what's in your head. And you have to prove the intention. And legally, you can't really prove a a kind of a mens rea at that age. You can't say with any certainty that a six-year-old intended to kill somebody. So generally, that concept of intent doesn't really start until a later age. The courts struggle with eight to nine and 10-year-olds and whether their actions are intentional, especially for worse, horrible crimes that that they commit. So where would this six-year-old be now in the Virginia system? Is that child in some kind of, we would call it uh, youth offenders? No, probably not. The parent is now in question about whether they can safely take care of this child, right? So the child would be removed from the parent's home and Department of Children and Family Services or some you know component would then have to determine where is a safe environment for that child. So the child would likely be placed in foster care. Wow. Um, the people in the foster care home would be aware of the whole of the circumstances 
And then there could be an adjudication in the child's home, whether or not there's anybody there who could safely care for the child. And in this case, where you have a child who has a lot of uh, challenges, right, there may be a situation where it has to be, you know, a special home or a group home, but it wouldn't be what you think of as a child detention center, because the child is not likely to be charged with anything. And the child detention centers are for children who are charged with crimes. Right. You did say that there was one other piece of information about that school that you wanted to share with me. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. I wanted to say this for all the parents out there who say, my child would never do that. I would never have that problem. Just within essentially the same week that this occurred, a fifth grader in the same school was on a chat with a bunch of other fifth graders and in the chat mentioned about popping bullets and shooting up the school. I'm going to send them to shoot up the school. Oh my goodness. I mean, that gives you chills, doesn't it? Red flag, red flag. Yeah. And you know, not surprisingly, fifth grader removed from school. I think this is an opportunity for parents to talk to their kids and say, honestly, this kid's been removed from his school day. You know, he thought he was going on these field trips. He's not going on them. Kids that this happens to, it will live with them forever. Even if they don't care right now, it might affect their ability to get a job, might affect their ability to get into a school that they want to get into. You know, when you do a background investigation to come into the FBI, our agents physically go to where you went to school and we pull your school records (laughs) as part of our investigation. Right. So when you hear people say, you don't want this on your permanent record. Yeah. That may be a joke on television, but it is a reality when it comes to background checks, you know, not just for access to classified material, but jobs. I think there'd be a lot of people listening right now that the first thing that they would be thinking is, should a comment like that stay on a child's record when they're a fifth grader? But I am so conscious that we have done so many of these episodes where that information didn't get passed on from perhaps the primary Mm -hmm. school to the middle school to the college. And if that information had been passed on and had been accessed, then the teachers would have had more tools in their toolbox when they were dealing with somebody that was on a trajectory. Love it. Couldn't have said it better myself. It's cumulative. Sometimes violence and proclivity is cumulative. It's the classic, oh, the guy became a serial killer, but when he was young, he used to kill and skin cats. Yeah. And there's no question that the parents were doing what they could do for this six-year-old child to some extent. Maybe they could have done a lot more. Absolutely. They could have not introduced a gun into the environment. Yes. And just in case you're wondering, school district superintendent, gone. School district principal reassigned, school district vice principal gone. So an impact of a lot of people. It's not just the lives, it's the careers, it's the children who were in the classroom and watched another child pull a trigger on a teacher. I mean, you can't imagine all the other six-year-olds in that class, the trauma that they're going to live with for the rest of their lives. Right. The screaming and the hearing the sound of a, Mm -hmm. of a, a gun being discharged. You stand next to somebody pulling a trigger. And in a classroom where the sound echoes and see how loud it is. Yeah. I mean, it could have been so much worse, but it was terrible to begin with. So my closers would be 
when you have a gun in your house, you have brought a gun into the environment. And it's your responsibility, not just to put a trigger lock on it, not just to tell your Mm -hmm. kids to stay away from it. It's your responsibility to know where it is at all times, at all times. And if you have a firearm around your kids, they need to have firearm safety. But don't let gun safety training convince you that child has the mental acuity and the maturity to make good decisions about guns. And I think what you said earlier is probably the most important thing is that, you know, if you don't know what your school does, go find out, go find out, go ask the principal. Do it now before there's something bad that happens. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who have overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave. My name is Bill Huffman. And I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic. And now each week, I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.